Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 212 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I chat with Andrew Yancey. He's the co-owner and operator of Tarnished Truth Distilling based out of the Cavalier Hotel in Virginia Beach, VA. We're recording this interview in the wake of an awesome in-person spirits event run by Andrew and his team called the Virginia Bourbon Invitational. This was my first live booze event since COVID, and I figured I'd take this opportunity to share my experience and tell you a little bit more about the awesome spirits being made in Virginia. But before we dive in, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Black Manhattan, and I was stunned to realize that we had never featured it on this podcast segment. So let's correct that right here, right now. To make a Black Manhattan, you'll need two ounces of American whiskey, traditionally bourbon or rye, one ounce Amaro Averna, one dash aromatic bitters, and one dash orange bitters. We, of course, like to use our embitterment aromatic and orange bitters. Combine these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir for about 15 to 20 seconds until everything is properly chilled and diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with a nice expressed orange twist. Invented in 2005 by bartender Todd Smith at the legendary San Francisco bar Bourbon and Branch, the Black Manhattan is precisely what it sounds like, a Manhattan, but darker. If you're really into bitter liqueurs, you can also play around with various fernets in this cocktail, whether we're talking about Fernet Branca or some other representative of that particularly intense herbal category. In fact, when testing an Amaro, the Black Manhattan is almost always my go-to cocktail, and it's also a delicious, simple crowd pleaser to break out during those holiday gatherings. So, now that you're equipped with a boozy, bitter sipper to settle the stomach and calm those holiday nerves, Let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating conversation with Andrew Yancey of Tarnished Truth Distilling, some of the topics we discuss include how Andrew and his team opened up the first and to date only hotel distillery in the U.S., why the history and lore of the Cavalier Hotel is so important to the brand and its mystique, including Prohibition-era suicides, fresh-prepared wild game, and a mysterious FBI file involving Richard Nixon. We also discuss what it takes to design a distillery from the ground up and the logic behind sourcing versus in-housing certain spirits at various points in a brand's growth and evolution. Of course, we also chat about the Virginia Bourbon Invitational, which is a fantastic annual event that will be returning to the Cavalier Hotel for its fourth year in November of 2022. Along the way, we touch on the importance of salt water in your bathtub, why the first person you hire should always be a chemist, grandfathers with multiple side hustles, and much, much more. 
If you visit the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast, you'll see some video and photo content that I captured from the event. I wasn't able to get a whole lot of audio because, as we mentioned, it was windy. But it was an awesome event with crazy good bourbon and other spirits from so many excellent Virginia distillers, and I hope that you'll have the chance to check out Tarnished Truth Distilling and the Cavalier Hotel next time you're in Virginia Beach. With that, please enjoy this conversation with the man behind it all, Tarnished Truth co-owner and operator, Andrew Yancey. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's begin by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you? Where are you? And what do you do? Yeah, my name is Andrew Yancey I'm in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I am the co-owner operator of Tarnished Truth Distilling Company and the Hunt Room Restaurant at the Cavalier Hotel. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, you and I actually had the chance to meet in person uh, a couple weekends ago at the Virginia Bourbon Invitational, which I'm sure is going to feature later on in our interview here. But we're not here just to talk about that event. We're also here to talk about tarnished truth about distilleries in hotels, about the very specific flavor of the hotel that you're in. It's a very special place. Um, So I, I guess... I'll, I'll prompt you into the story of Tarnished Truth by saying that when I was speaking with your team member, Rachel, after we had just done the blind whiskey rating and review uh, during the Virginia Bourbon Invitational, she mentioned that this had been a dream of yours and that she uh, had talked to you about it while she was serving you cocktails at a bar that she had previously worked at. So I guess my question is, how long before Tarnished Truth actually opened its doors in operation, had you been planning on opening this sort of operation, a a distillery in a hotel? Yeah, um, probably a total of about five to six years. Um, and, And really the idea in the beginning wasn't so much in a hotel. It was more, I wanted to do something with my hands. You know, I wanted to create something of my own. And in the beginning, it could have been widgets for all I, you know, and I was working uh, for the city of Norfolk as the assistant economic development director. Um, And I was putting all these business deals together. So I brought Ikea to Norfolk and, you know, a bunch of hotels and different commercial businesses and I was seeing how all these businesses were doing so well. Um, and I loved bourbon and I loved going on the, the bourbon trail in Kentucky and, and just, you know, the, the kind of mystique behind how bourbon is made. Um, and all these breweries were popping up everywhere, but I didn't see any distilleries locally, at least here, that were making really good craft spirits um, and, and doing anything in a unique way. And that's when I kind of started veering towards the distillery. And I started doing a little bit of research um, on on what was around in Virginia. And at the time, there was probably only maybe 15 or 20 distilleries in Virginia, where now there's, I guess, close to 200. Um, And there really there wasn't any of them in Virginia Beach that were doing bourbon or whiskey. 
So I started building this business plan on the weekends and at night I was going to the library and, and reading books on distillation. I was looking up business plans, um, visiting every distillery that I could go to and talking to every master distiller or owner who would give me any kind of information on how it works financially and operationally. So, I mean, that was, that was a good three years of doing that before the location of the hotel even came into it. But I noticed something when I went to Kentucky that, you know, a lot of these distilleries are out in Bardstown, you know, so you go to Louisville and you have to drive two hours kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And, and it's really a destination unto itself. And I noticed that in the business plan, you know, there was when you're getting started and trying to sell your, your liquor wholesale to the either the ABC stores or the liquor stores, you know, and, and you're putting a ton of bourbon away in a warehouse for three, five, ten years the income is really slow in the beginning. And, and for me, it was kind of a light went off and said, well, then we need a lot of foot traffic. We need to sell a lot of merchandise. We need to do a lot of tours. We need to um, have people always in the distillery. And that was when I was like, you know, I kind of looked at it and said, well, I've got the, we have the oceanfront. We have millions of people visiting here every year. That's where it needs to be. And the Cavalier Hotel was somewhere that I grew up taking swimming lessons in the pool there. Uh, we used to climb to the bell tower when we were little. And when a business associate of mine actually purchased the hotel at auction, I was kind of right there, had just finished the business plan and said, that's it, that's the spot. And I went and pitched the idea to him and he said, man, I wish I had thought of that. That's a great story. And I wanna jump into the Cavalier Hotel in just a moment here, but I, I wanna return later to this idea of solving the economic problem that bourbon and aged spirits in general pose to businesses in their first few years of operation, because it's a problem that most distilleries in the US, unless you are you know, one of the uh, outliers who is doing something that is distinctly unaged, most distilleries in the US, especially at the craft level, will, will encounter this economic issue. And it seems like you've done a really great job, not just trying to solve it from one direction, but you know, you kind of mentioned a few different income streams just briefly there that it seems like you're not, you didn't just solve that problem. You, you almost like overcame it in, in a manner of speaking. Now I don't have access to your books, nor do I care to, but yeah. it seems like that's a something we should return to. But before we do talk to me about the Cavalier Hotel, because it has not just a long history, but like a great comeback story. So can you walk our listeners uh, who've not had the chance to visit Virginia Beach through this historic building? Sure. Yeah. So the, the hotel was originally built um, in the late 20s, opened right in the middle of Prohibition. It is a gorgeous hotel built up on a hill in Virginia Beach, and it's set back about a block from the ocean but because of the way the great lawn has these tiered levels to it it sits up on the top you have a beautiful view of the ocean um, and it had a just a wide expanse that went all the way down to the beach and created this beautiful lawn where they used to do um, horse shows and, and all kinds of really neat things and when it was built in 1927 it was it had a couple restaurants in there. It had the Hunt Room, which is our the restaurant that we currently run. We kept that. Also had a fine dining uh, restaurant upstairs. 
um, and they would do high tea. And there was actually a train that left from Chicago, went through Boston, New York, uh, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and actually ended right on the front lawn of the Cavalier. And it was called, the train was called the Cavalier. And it would pick people up, take them on vacation, and then they'd get back on the train and return. Um, so it was a very high-end hotel back then. You know, we had a lot of, of, of movie stars, nine different presidents stayed there. Um, and then you also had your, your other side of the coin where we had, you know, Al Capone was a frequent visitor, um, had Adolph Coors, the owner of Coors Beer, actually committed suicide in the hotel during Prohibition because he thought his life was over. So there's, there's a lot of great stories and a lot of, you know, amazing people that have been through there. And then moving on into the 70s and 80s, the hotel really just went into disrepair. Um, a family, a local family bought it um, and tried to run it, but, you know, really w weren't hoteliers and just let it go into disrepair. And ultimately it ended up closing. Most of the rooms were closed by late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, and they just had basically the ballrooms open so that they could have events and, and weddings there. And so the, uh, the the family that owned it, when it got into a bunch of financial turmoil and ended up putting it up on the auction, the auction block. Now, this was the largest piece of undeveloped land at the oceanfront. So naturally, you know, your Marriott's and Hilton's and Ramada's of the world, this was, I mean, they were ready because the way that the city had zoned the property, they would have been able to put up roughly 1,200 hotel rooms on that property. They were just going to tear it down and, and build a bunch of really big uh, hotels. So my business partner, Bruce Thompson, gathered together five other local businessmen and they decided to buy the hotel themselves and, and restore it themselves with their own money and really turn it into a five star just resort with with every amenity you can imagine and, and the views and the same type of guests that they came in the 20s and 30s. And so it's really turned out to be exactly what it was back then. Yeah. Did the train stop running? Like I met, obviously when I was there, there was no train coming in and out. No. So when <laughs> yeah. did this train stop running? Because I have a related follow-up observation. About you know, that. I'm not sure on the actual year of it, um, but when they were doing the uh, restoration of the Great Lawn, they actually found pieces of the train track and a bunch of coal from when they used to put the, the coal to to uh, move the steam engines and everything. They found it all on the front lawn. I don't know the exact date. I could find it out, but I'm not sure. The reason why I ask is because, you know, like obviously, and the Cavalier has done a great job playing this up with, um, you know, just some of the plaques that they have around the property, you know, portraits of some of the famous guests who were who uh, mm -hmm. visited. I, I think on my floor, there was like Bob Hope or something like that by the yeah. elevator. It's clearly an outlier in terms of the type of people that it attracted. And when I think about where people tend to go in vacation, it tends to be like, well, people in Washington, D.C., where I'm based, a lot of them go out to Bethany Beach in Delaware or some of the other Delaware beaches. I know that my wife grew up in South Jersey, and that's a big, you know, Philadelphia people go to South Jersey beaches, mm -hmm. New York people go to the North Jersey beaches or Long Island. When I was, when I grew up in Massachusetts, we always went to Maine and those beaches. So it seems like, 
that train having that from Chicago up through all of the big Eastern corridor cities really was an important part to bringing all those crazy people from the Capones of the world to the Coors and, and, and beyond. And so it's just really nice to hear that because I didn't, I, I heard, I knew there was something about a train stop, but it didn't really occur to me that one of the reasons why perhaps the hotel had this sway was because it was the terminus of a track that hit so many influential places. So right. can you just take us through, we got to, we got to get it out there. What happened in that fireplace down yeah. in the, the hunt room? <laughs> it's funny. We, so when we were kind of doing all the architectural renderings and looking at how they were going to design the hotel and everything, we, we had these archives from throughout the years that the former owners had had and, and stuff that we actually hired a guy to go find different archives. We had a file from the FBI where they, had provided it to us, given us a copy of it, where they shut the hotel down when President Nixon was there. And this was during the Watergate scandal. And he was in the hunt room, which has this amazing fireplace that you've seen. It's seven feet wide and six feet tall. And they shut the whole hotel down and cleared out the contents of the fireplace, hoping to find, I guess, something that they thought he had burned in the fireplace. And, you know, some people don't believe it, but there are there. I have the FBI file. It shows that they did. They closed down the hotel and they had to clear everyone out. And they went into the hunt room and took everything out of there. Was, I, I, you know, ashes is what it said in the uh, in the report. But, yeah, that that happened. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe uh, it, it's uh, I mean, obviously there was a, a very diverse clientele, but between, you know, Coors uh, jumping out a window uh, on the sixth floor and Nixon, you know, potentially destroying some important documents in there, you know, suffice it to say, uh, old white guys behaving poorly. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And, and the hunt room was really kind of known for that back in those days, especially during Prohibition, where it was it was became a speakeasy. Um, and so it was only only gentlemen allowed. There was no women allowed in there. Um, and it was called the hunt room because you could go fox hunting on the property and you could also go duck hunting and goose hunting and you could bring whatever you killed back there and they would cook it in the kitchen for you. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Uh it, it, it's an, an interesting um, historical touch point. Obviously, you've done a really nice job preserving that heritage in the decor of the room. It, it has that, you know, it, it's it's slightly subterranean. It's got that nice kind of dark, almost lodge-like vibe with lots of, you know, vintage firearms and, and uh, taxidermy on the walls. So mm-hmm. uh, for anybody who's into that sort of thing, it's worth just going to check it out and and take a walk around and and see it. Um, I want to now return back to the process of starting this distillery, taking this space, taking this space with all this potential, all this lore around it, all this mystique and almost, uh, we might call it tarnished prestige. Um, right. How did that play into the uh, brand of Tarnished Truth? And and what were the first things that you did to, as you mentioned, get some of that revenue coming in so that you could get into the process of developing your own spirits? Yeah. So one thing we did is, you know, we hired a, a really good architect who specializes in hospitality. So restaurants, hotels. And because I wanted him to look at the distillery space from a guest's perspective, 
how will the tours flow through? How could a guest sit in the hunt room and view the different pieces of equipment? How can they really get integrated into the tour to where they're not just looking up at a bunch of tanks, but they're actually looking down at them and smelling the smells that come out of the fermenter and, you know, having each piece of equipment labeled so they can understand what goes where and how, what, what every piece of equipment does. So that was a really important piece was hiring that type of architect. And then also having um, somebody from the operational side who was Larry Ebersold. He was the master distiller for MGP for 35 years. So he and the architect kind of worked together looking at two different you know, aspects of an operational distillery, him from, we would need to make this an operational distillery that's really functional and efficient. And the architect looking at it from the guest perspective and the two together, um, you know, it probably took us a little bit longer than it would typically take, but in the end it creates a great experience. And we end up getting a, a, um, a distillery that's really efficient. There's not hoses laying on the ground. There's not, you know, things in people's viewplanes. And so, you know, we can press a button and everything goes over your head or under your feet without being in the way if a tour is going on. Um, so that was really probably one of the most critical things. And, and it took a lot, a lot, a lot of money and a lot of time. But I think in the end, it, it turned out really well for us. And it created that experience that, you know, our tour doesn't really give a lot of people when they go on different tours, you know, they're just kind of in a room walking together, whereas ours is just you can do everything. You learn a lot. You can see everything. You can see how the process moves almost without anyone telling you just by visually looking at the cues on the walls and the tanks. Yeah. It's a really, really tight design. And I had the chance to talk with Larry a little bit when we did mm -hmm. that, uh, the blind judging of the, of the bourbons for the Virginia bourbon invitational. And it's, it's funny because his personality is so no nonsense down to business. Like what's going to make the best <laughs> yeah. booze? How, how is this going to be done most efficiently? And he really, you could, you can tell this is just a, a man who really, really cares about his spirit. So definitely yeah. a good pickup and, and a, a, a good, uh, I wouldn't say cautionary tale, a good success story of trying to, you know, take, somebody with one domain of expertise and somebody with another and mash them together in a way that hopefully we always hope that this is going to render something that is from like great from a guest experience perspective and also great from a process distilling perspective right it doesn't always work out that way but it seems like you found the right combo to to really make that click this episode is brought to you by near country provisions if you're like me here are some things you might be like. You live in the mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country Provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. I also want to 
have you touch on your distiller, Justin, because mm -hmm. I had a really great experience working with him in uh, when, when I visited as well. Uh, how did you come across him and what does he bring to the distilling team at Tarnish Truth? Yeah. So working with Larry, you know, he, he was from the very beginning when it was just me not knowing anything about distilling and flying out to meet him in Kentucky and, and mentor under him at various distilleries that, that people that he knew, you know, they would let me go in there and try and start learning things. And he said, you know, if there's one thing that you need, you can, you need, you need to hire a chemist. And he said, the other people, whatever, you know, you can get someone from a brewing background or, you know, anything, but you got to have a chemist. Um, and so I took that to heart because, you know, everything he told me to do, it ended up being right on, right spot on. And so I, I started looking around for chemists everywhere I could, especially a chemist that was actually interested in either distilling or, or bourbon or whatever. And someone had come into the distillery who knew Justin and said, you know, I know I heard you guys are looking for somebody. Um, I know this guy's a bartender down the street and he's got a chemistry degree. Uh, I said, give me his number right now. Um, and so I, I met with him and he was actually bartending at uh, probably one of the best bourbon bars that we have in Virginia Beach. And, you know, I explained to him the, the situation and, and his eyes just lit up. You know, he said, this is my dream job. I'm not going to lie to you. And so that's how I found him. And then when I brought him on the team, I mean, he's just so passionate about bourbon, about process, about chemistry, you know, every little detail. He's like me. I'm a very particular person. I'm very particular about cleanliness and, and, you know, our labels. And he's the exact same way about the distilling process. And, you know, he, he met Larry and really just fell in love with Larry's passion for it. And his, like you said, his demeanor of it's this and this is how it's done and you need to stick to this. And no, I don't do flavored whiskey because that's not bourbon, the kind of guy. Right. Sure. And so that's, you know, he, he's come on and he's just done an amazing job at really fulfilling the shoes of, of what I see as our head distiller, 100%. One of the things that we try to emphasize on this show, whether I'm talking to a bartender or somebody in the spirits world is the beginner's mindset and the importance of curiosity in uh, so far as it pertains to attaining some level of consistent quality. And the story that I have about that with Justin is, you know, we were sitting there with Larry and a few other folks around the table judging these spirits. And if anybody has ever watched the process of judging a flight of spirits, it's not particularly interesting to observe. It is just a bunch of people sitting in silence, making mouth and nose noises at <laughs> yeah. a set of glasses, occasionally spitting into a bucket. And then, you know, that goes on for about 20 minutes at, at a given flight. And so at one point I looked up and, and, you know, Justin and Rachel were just kind of, they were sitting there patiently, you know, Rachel was refilling water as, as we needed. So it was, it was a well uh, orchestrated and managed judging experience. But I looked at Justin, and I said, this is a uh, super interesting, huh? And, and he, he, it, you know, I was kind of joking, being a little sarcastic. And he said, no, this is actively fascinating to me, you know, and he sat there just watching each one of the judges and just, I, I could see him soaking in the different processes. And um, so to me, you know, just speaking with him about your products and 
like having that very earnest, like, no, like, I know you're joking right now, but this is actually fascinating to me responses, you know, just the proof in the pudding of his mindset and why I think that, you know, you have such a promising head start compared to so many operations that don't have the opportunity to put this kind of design thinking into not only their space, but their team. Obviously, it was a coincidence that he was at the bourbon bar down the street from you. But aside from that, you know, everything seems really, really intentional and planned out. So that's something I wanted to call out just as a compliment to Justin, who was not able to join us today. Um, but just uh, as as the mindset behind your spirits in general. So I figured since we're talking about your spirits, can you take us through the products that you offer and maybe uh, just as a prompt, something that I've been interested in is the transition between sourcing and in-housing aged spirits. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we have kind of our flagship, which is our high rye bourbon. And that was actually based off of the MGP's famous high rye bourbon recipe that Larry actually started when he was there. And that was the first recipe I learned how to make. Um, and I love, I just love that recipe. And in the beginning, we were, we did source some of that from MGP to have a little when we started. And Larry, we started making that recipe with Larry before we opened. Um, just so we could understand, you know, the different flavors and how we could change it if we wanted to. But really the structure was with Larry, this is how you do it. If you, if you stray away from this recipe, it's not this recipe and it's going to change it significantly. And we did some changes just as, you know, let's see what happens kind of thing. Well, how does it change the, the flavors and, and the fermentation and our yields? But that's kind of our flagship bourbon. Everyone loves it. I love it. It's one of my favorites. It makes such a great cocktail um, just with the spice of that rye. Um, so that's our flagship bourbon. We also have our bourbon cream, which is sort of like a Bailey's, but it's a bourbon-based Bailey. So we use that high rye in the cream. That's probably one of our best sellers just because palate-wise, it, yeah, everybody loves that. You can put in your coffee, milkshake, whatever. Um, so that one's done really well. We have our Old Cavalier bourbon, which the idea behind that was was really to provide something right in the beginning when we opened that was high end enough that would kind of match the five star service of the hotel. You know, we wanted something single barrel, really high end, really old, not really old, but aged well enough to where it tastes like it should with the price tag of, you know, $100 a bottle. Um, So we went out and searched all over the place trying to find just even if it was 10 barrels. Um, And I was actually in Kentucky with Larry when we came across a guy who had this at the time, I want to say it was like five year old bourbon. And he was trying to build a new Rick house and needed some cash. And Larry said, look, man, if you can get this guy to sell you some of these barrels, it's going to be terrific in about three years. And so I ended up offering him to buy a hundred of those barrels. And that's what is now our old Cavalier. We still have, I don't know, maybe, maybe 20 of those barrels left. So that that'll be gone soon. And we're trying to figure out what we want to do with that, whether that old Cavalier will just always be a sourced bourbon, maybe, um, and maybe one day when we get to have our stuff be 13 years old, then we'll, we'll switch it over. But, you know, we're not, we don't ever try to hide the fact that that, that wasn't something that we found. We do finish it on site. So we do some uh, like sherry barrel finish, a port wine barrel finish, a rum barrel finish, 
to kind of put our own stamp on it, but it is just a great bourbon. There's no doubt about that. And then we have our fourth handle gin, which was actually Justin's doing. I was never really interested in gin. And Justin came to me one day and said, what do you think about doing a gin? And I said, well, I hate gin. I'm, I, I've never drank it. I don't really like it. I don't know enough about it to really know if we're making a good gin or a bad gin. Um, and he said, well, what if I did it? What if I went and did the research? And I, you know, and I said, look, if that's what you want to do, let's do it. You know, I'll, I'll give you a shot, but I don't want it to be, uh, you know, your, your run of the mill every day, London dry style gin. Let's make it our own. You know, let's make it something unique. And so he probably went through, I don't know, 35 to 40 different botanicals and different, you know, iterations of those botanicals together and finally came up with what we have now, which we've won multiple awards for. And it's just such a unique gin that I will drink. I drink it now just with a little bit of tonic water, even with soda water. I mean, he did such an amazing job on it. And cool story behind it is the fourth handle gin. So every bathtub when the hotel was, was built had four handles. It had a hot, a cold, a shower handle, but then it had a fourth handle that would bring ocean water into your bathtub because in the day it was very opulent to have a saltwater bath. They thought it was good for your skin. And so we wanted to kind of make that connection between the hotel one, but also that we were doing something a little bit extra and a little bit opulent to make this gin the best that it can be. Um, And so that's just been really, really great. I love that. That's such a great connection to the place. Um, I like also talking to people about this transition between sourcing and in-housing your age spirits because, you know, A, it gives distillers the opportunity to communicate like, hey, we're no longer in an era in general. I mean, are are people still going to try and obfuscate that? Of course. But in an era where it's the availability of good cooperage is only getting more scarce. This Mm -hmm. is going to be something that continues to happen. And it's one of the rare sort of confluence points as I see it between the craft distilling world and the big money distilling world of the, you know, the giant producers. And you know, I, I think it's like the one it's it's almost like the demilitarized zone of, of like where, you know, somebody who's got a small craft operation can interact with somebody who has this big operation without them necessarily being the emp- the evil empire and without, you know, the, you know, MGPs of the world. Well, MGP is maybe a, a different case because they do so much of that sourcing. Yeah. But like without, you know, a big bourbon company looking down at a small little distiller and then saying like, all right, how efficiently can we you know, push these guys out of business. Um, right. So I, I like doing it. And it's something I just want to encourage our listeners, like, listen, if you're getting age spirits from an operation that has not been around for at least five years, it's almost definitely sourced. You should be looking as a quality indicator, not so much for like, for what they, I guess, where they got the spirit, but more that they're being direct about the fact that it is sourced and or blended and or finished, right? I think it's such a valid way to get people in the door and say like, all right, listen, like, you know, we still got our stuff. We just put our stuff to sleep. It's sitting there in its barrel. It's getting all these amazing flavors that we're so excited to show you in a couple of years. But for now, what we have while that bourbon is sleeping, we have this really cool cask finish that we did 
you know, let me tell you about port barrels. Let me tell you about Oloroso sherry. Like right. that's still something to talk about. It's something to educate and to engage with folks with. And I just prefer so much that it's done above the board than trying to put all this energy into obfuscating that and pretending that it is something that you made and just, you know, snapped your fingers and suddenly yeah. there's an eight year old whiskey in a bottle. Like that's not how it happens in the real world. You know, don't, don't lie to your guests. So I, I appreciate you being willing to engage on that because I think yeah. it's such an important part to a, a, a spirit maker's journey in the age space. But what do you have? So you've got the you've got the whiskeys, you've got a bunch of uh, finishes that I assume are limited releases. You've got mm -hmm. the fourth handled gin. Do you have any other spirits uh, or any other, I guess, like different mash bills or finishes that are uh, kind of coming down the road here? Yeah. So we have our weeded bourbon that we're about to put out in January, February. Uh, we're in the same position as everybody trying to get bottles right now has not been the easiest. Um, but we've had that weeded bourbon uh, laying down for about five years now. It's an awesome recipe. Um, it was something that between Justin, Larry, and I, we came up with um, through a few different iterations of weeded percentages and, you know, corn percentages and barley. Um, and we landed on and it's just right now we've been tasting it over the last six months and it's it, it's going to be really really good um and it's got a great name that's going to tie to the hotel the label is just beautiful um so we've been working really hard on that for the last year just trying to make that come to fruition so i'm really excited about that um because that's you know something that's original to us even though our high rye bourbon you know is our own that we're selling right now it's still a recipe that we kind of you know just took took that was the same as an MGP recipe because we wanted that consistency. So this is really something that a bourbon, we came up with the recipe. We were very purposeful about it um, and, and tweaked it a lot to make it what it is. So that that's going to be really, really cool. And then we obviously, we just came out with our line of canned cocktails that uses all of our spirits. So we have a bourbon lemonade and an orange crush and a vodka cranberry. Uh, we have a gin blackberry bramble coming out next month. Um, nice. So yeah, that's that's been really fun to do to kind of start and go off in a, you know another direction of the business. Now, I, I saw that name in your uh, email suffix, but for folks who aren't familiar, what is the name of the canned cocktail line? Yeah, so that's uh, Coastal Cocktails. Coastal cocktails. Yeah, yep. very, very. Um, and, and it's funny, too, because the flavors that you picked, like like that bourbon lemonade, especially, I was just like, oh, man, that makes me think of the beach right there. So it's, you yeah. know, it's playing on sort of a slightly different. It's a it's a different face of Virginia Beach, right? Because there's, of course, the Cavalier Hotel, a very specific flavor of experience and then you go just a couple blocks down and you're in party central and right, right. i imagine that the number of white claw cans and <laughs> twisted yeah. tea cans and all that, that that get consumed in virginia beach between uh, memorial day and labor days is, is astounding so right. why not have a local option that, you know that uses your your spirits um so i, I think that's a, a great move especially in the town that you're in Let's talk just quickly here about the Virginia Bourbon Invitational, which is an event that you've held for the past three years. Is that correct? Yeah, we had to skip last year. So this was mm -hmm. the third, should have been the fourth, but. Okay. Um, so four years running, three uh, events. And, um, you know, 
I was invited because I'm going to put together an article for Distiller Magazine on this event. But I, I, will, I will say this is my first live in-person spirits event since COVID. What was it like for you to put this event together? I mean, obviously you had experience doing it a few times, but like, what was what were you excited about this year? What do you think went particularly well about the event, knowing that that thing wasn't the gale force winds that were uh, going on during the <laughs> yeah. event itself? Yeah, the last couple we've had, I mean, we had just immaculate weather. It was, you know, 80 degrees in, in November. But it's always like, gosh, it's it's the worst two weeks of my life. And every time I get, you know, the Friday night before, I look at my wife and ask her, why the hell do I put myself through this every year? But it's so rewarding at the end of the day because I think it's an experience and an event, a spirit event at least, that is unlike most other bourbon events. And that's what I'm most proud of is that people are like, I have never been to a bourbon or spirit tasting event of this caliber with the food options that you guys have, the spirit availability that you have and the ambiance and setting of it, you know, and that was really my impetus behind doing this is is doing something that wasn't, hey, bourbon and barbecue, you know, like we have so many of those and it's not people just chugging bourbon because it's a barbecue outdoor festival, you know, it's really meant to be an educational spirit tasting experience. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody who has attended a number of those, you know, like some things that were notably absent food trucks, right. yeah. <laughs> instead you had these really nice small bites prepared by the hotels. It was by the hotels catering, correct? No, it's six different restaurants. Oh, it um, was different. Okay. Yeah. So each each table was a different restaurant. So we had six restaurants total. Two of them were from the Cavalier Hotel. Two of them were from the hotel across the street. And then the other two were from a hotel uh, in Norfolk. Okay. So I must have just looked at only the two that had the uh, the Cavalier Hotel's names, or maybe yeah. they were the ones with the most delicious uh, bites yeah. that I kept returning <laughs> to. But uh, really great uh, selection of, of different food. Like I, I was a little bit you know, I was, I was a little bit nervous because the food, you move the food inside because of the, you know, the winds were blowing out the sterno solid move. Uh, everybody yeah. appreciates hot food, but I was a little bit concerned. I was like, Oh, there's so many people. Is there going to be enough food? Are they going to run out after an hour? And nope, like that food just kept coming yeah. all the way through. It was beautifully done and absolutely delicious. So from a, a culinary standpoint, like definitely the best bourbon event I've gone to for what is not the brown liquid being poured into my glass. And then, you know, also it was just, you know, you had fire pits, you had Adirondack chairs, you had different, you know, seating areas where people could, you know, like you said, that rolling kind of terraced or tiered great lawn, people could, you know, go and get a nice view of the ocean. You had uh, live music and uh, kind of covered seating in another area. And so it really, I think it really displayed the best things that the hotel had to offer, as well as some of the best things that Virginia spirits have to offer. Um, and yeah, I just figured I'd give you a chance to to plug that event. Is there anywhere if somebody happens to be in the Mid-Atlantic and and might want to participate in the this event in years to come, um, where might they go for information or is there a social media account they should follow for updates? Yeah, there is there's a Virginia Bourbon Invitational Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, vabourboninvitational.com. 
Uh, or you can always right. just do info at Tarnish Truth, and that comes to me, and I usually sure. kind of field all those all those questions. But yeah, it's you know it's an idea I had when we did first open that you know I've been to so many of these festivals, and a lot of times the distillers were kind of like, yeah, they're great, but we spend so much time here, and it's not really our clientele, and people aren't buying a lot. And I knew what we had, and I knew we had the foot traffic, and we had the clientele that if they could get to these people, you know, they could really open up and, and be able to sell a lot. And, you know, it not, it wasn't really a self-serving thing for me because I'm promoting other people's spirits. I just wanted everyone to know how many great distilleries there are in Virginia and have an awesome festival for it. And so I think, you know, all of Virginia distilleries really appreciate this event. They, they always line up and sign up every year. Yeah, it was a, a great crew. Um, some definitely some of the best that the the state or I suppose the Commonwealth has to offer. Commonwealth, yeah, yeah. So knowing that if you want to go and engage with Tarnished Truth, you have the opportunity to go book a stay at the Cavalier Hotel. You have the opportunity to keep your eyes peeled for the next Virginia Bourbon Invitational. Um, obviously, ABC stores in Virginia and liquor stores elsewhere. Where are you folks distributed? outside of VA? Just Virginia, just Virginia right now. Um, you know, we've been really specific about being able to, uh, I'm not, I don't want to put myself out there and stretch it too thin to where then I don't have enough to supply on site. And I mean, it, the amount of bottles that we go through in that tasting room, that retail shop has been triple what we thought it was going to be. So sometimes we have trouble just keeping up with that. You know, we're a small operation. Now that we're getting into a lot of our own stock though, um, we're going to start looking at going out into, you know, the neighboring states, North Carolina, Maryland, Delaware. Um, now that we have some capacity, especially coming out with our new weeded bourbon, we've got a lot of that that um, we'll be bottling up. So right now it's just Virginia. We do have some online partners through LibDib and um, a couple other we're signing up with where people can get online. But uh, yeah, right now, just Virginia and trying to keep that fulfilled. Awesome. Well, that's a smart growth plan. And there's also a very small diamond shaped municipality on the Potomac that, that you could maybe send yes, some models exactly. to, yeah, you know, when, for us, for us folks here in DC. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I know that you, you uh, kind of told us about some of the product releases that you were excited about. Is there anything else that we haven't hit that you want to uh, share with our listeners before we jump into a couple quick lightning rounds? No, I mean, oh, the uh, Bourbon Invitational is November 5th of next year. So put that on your calendar. We already decided on that date. But other than that, no, um, you know, we're, we're, we're online. So if you do live in Virginia, you can order our spirits uh, through our website and we can deliver shipping to your house if you're in Virginia. But yeah, look forward to the new, uh, new weeded bourbon coming out about January, February. It's going to be amazing. And like, you know, the tours at the distillery, if you haven't done it, come down and, and do a tour. You'll be really impressed and stay at the hotel, make a weekend of it. It's it's a great place. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, so with that, let's jump into the lightning round. First question, uh, I know you're a bourbon guy, obviously, but uh, what's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something that you've been more recently getting into? Hmm. Um, I'd have to say my favorite cocktail because I really don't make cocktails at home just because when I get home, the last thing I want to do is make another cocktail. Um, I would have to say it would come from, from the hunt room, which is our restaurant. And it was something that I had actually never had uh, before opening up the restaurant for some reason, but it's the black Manhattan. 
Um, and I've just absolutely fallen in love with it. And the guys do such an amazing job at the hunt room with it. Um, we That uses our old Cavalier. And then they have these Exmo bitters that they make with some Angostura bitters, a little orange twist and some Averna. And it is just, it comes in this beautiful coupe glass. And uh, I just, uh, I love it. Everybody loves the old fashions down there, but for me, it's the Black Manhattan. Oh, totally. It's such a good drink, especially in the yeah. winter. Oh man, I love it. We haven't had that answer nearly as often as we should on this uh, lightning round. So yes, Black Manhattan, uh, if you haven't had one, you need to. Uh, yeah, they're, they're delicious. Uh, next question. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture. I would probably be uh, with my grandfather for sure. He uh, he owned a deli uh, when I was really young and it was one of like the most famous Jewish delicatessens in 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 Norfolk, which is right next to Virginia Beach here. And he passed away you know, before I even went to college, I think I was in early high school, but I just remember him saying, you know, you got to work hard. You got to do your own thing. You don't want to be a beer truck delivery guy. He used to always tell me that, but I think he was worried that I wasn't going to, you know, grow up to be something because I was kind of a wild child, but I would love to be able to sit down with him and, and have a cocktail and show him, you know, what I've become and kind of followed in his entrepreneurial footsteps um, because that's what he was, you know, he was always had some deal he was putting together. He had a private eye company, he had a jewelry store, he had this deli, you know, so he was just a guy of many talents and loved, loved, you know, had the entrepreneurial spirit. So I would have been able to love to be able to sit with him and just show him what I've done. That's awesome. That's incredible. And Great. I, I love the private eye and private eye jewelry yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, cured meats. That's, yep. that's, uh, I mean, that's the way to, that's the way to my heart, uh, se secrets, shiny, shiny rocks and, uh, expertly smoked hams. Um, I love it. Uh, right. last question here. Do you have any unusual or potentially controversial views in the booze or cocktail world? I probably kind of go back to Larry's, uh, belief that, I really don't like flavored whiskey. That, that's probably my thing. I've never had, I've, I've had it maybe once or twice and I just can't stand it. Everybody wants us to do, you know, the maple bourbon or some kind of, and I, no, it's not happening. I just don't do that. I don't like it. I don't think, you know, if you want to add something to it, make yourself a cocktail. That is, that is a, a very um, valid belief. I, usually what I do, usually that question ends up being a therapy session where it's somebody who like has this belief and they feel like their belief is under attack. And I'm like, no, 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 it's really reasonable. In this case, <laughs> I'm going to controversially disagree with you. No, I'm not saying that I like all flavored bourbons, but man, like, have you ever had screwball? Yes, I have. <laughs> and I know it is. It's, it's just the strangest taste. It is. It's like Reese's in a glass and it I'm is. not, it's crazy. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it's good whiskey. I'm just trying to say it's the sort of thing that I would classify as a drain pour. Right. And like, I would be like, Oh, my wife, like my wife really likes chocolate and peanut butter and like all those desserty flavors, like big into like Reese's and stuff like that. And like, she tried it and she was like, that's disgusting. And yeah. I tried it. I was like, I don't know. I kind of really yeah. like this. I know it's terrible. Uh, nothing, no offense, screwball. Like, but like, yeah. I don't know. I kind of like it. So this is one of those cases. It's that where, and 
You know, from the bourbon making thing, I I, I met with um, owner of Heaven Hill, Max Shapiro, uh, who's become a pretty good friend of mine. And he's gave me two pieces of advice. It's one, never age in small barrels. And two, it can never age too long. You just have to be patient. You know, and that's kind of the two things that I live by in the operation of our distillery is that we will never age in small barrels and we're never going to take it out of the barrel too early. If it's not ready, it's just not ready. There you go. Uh, well, I think that we've hit a number of really interesting quality checkpoints during this conversation. So uh, for longtime listeners of this podcast, you'll be e you'll be able to easily pick those checkpoints out can verify uh, the operation at Tarnished Truth is something to behold. And I do hope that if anybody finds themselves in the Virginia Beach area now or in the future, that you take some time, swing by, take a tour, have a cocktail at the Hunt Room, and uh, pick up a bottle of some of Tarnished Truth's delicious whiskey or their fourth handle award-winning gin. So uh, Andrew, just Tell us how to uh, get in touch digitally. What's the best social media for Tarnished Truth in particular? Yeah, Facebook is probably our most active one. Um, you can always get in touch there. Our, the messaging you know, PMs there or direct messages there, we always respond to. I, I see all of them. If it's not me responding, it's uh, one of my retail girls. So that or info at Tarnished Truth. Um, so you can order stuff online. You can actually book tours on our website online, Tarnished Truth. Uh, dot com. Uh, so any of the social media messaging for platforms or info at Tarnished Truth, you can get a hold of me. And we will link to as many of those things as we can over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Andrew, thanks so much for being a guest. Absolutely. This has been awesome. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Barcart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. 
Distilling and Bourbon Insights, courtesy of Andrew Yancey and Tarnished Truth Distilling, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.